This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Your company has developed a new product that you think will be a winner. A lot of money has been poured into research and development, analysis of the competition, and an advertising campaign. But there's one more thing you've left out. What do you charge for the product? Wharton marketing professors Jagmohan Raju and John Zhang say companies frequently don't put anywhere near as much thought into pricing as they should. In their new book, titled Smart Pricing, Raju and Zhang argue that firms ought to engage in innovative pricing to achieve maximum profitability, and they show how companies like Google are doing just that. Your new book, Smart Pricing, covers an awful lot of ground in in relatively few pages. You analyze many examples of firms that have successfully used different pricing strategies, and we'll discuss those in detail in a moment. But I wanted to ask you first about an important thesis that you state very early on in the book, which is that managers with pricing responsibilities do not usually think systematically about those pricing strategies. You say most pricing decision makers never look for a strategy that could yield their product's maximum value. Um, I think to most readers, that's quite a surprising statement. So can you talk a little bit about why so little thought is apparently given to pricing? Raju, do you want to start? Uh, Yes, I think uh, there are, uh, let's, let's be clear, there are some companies that are very good at it, and there are some companies that don't give much thought to it because they just follow what they've been doing for years. Uh, Some of them might Uh, look at what others are doing and just charge the same price. In fact, the pricing function in most companies is not very well recognized. It's only now that we are starting to see companies uh, having a formal pricing function. uh, And uh, and therefore, the the responsibility of pricing is very diffused. Oftentimes, it's with accounting. Sometimes it's with finance. uh, Sometimes marketing people are involved in it. So to some extent, the decision-making is because no one has a unique responsibility for pricing and a well-laid-out responsibility, the decision gets made in an ad hoc manner. How the decision is very important because at the end of the day, uh, you know, we all spend as companies uh, billions of dollars developing new products. We spend billions of dollars then advertising them and promoting them. But we probably don't even spend $1,000 thinking about how to price it. Uh, and if we don't do it well, then where will be the money for uh, developing the next new product or the next new idea? John, any thoughts? So, for some companies, obviously, that you you have uh, people uh, who have this uh, pricing uh, responsibility. Uh, for instance, you probably would bump into some of the pricing managers or the vice president of uh, pricing and, and so on and so forth. And, but even in those companies, I think I totally, totally agree with Raju that, uh, in fact, uh, that uh, people probably don't have the sophistication to actually set the good prices. I think there are probably two additional reasons, uh, in addition to the fact that uh, the process is not in place and the finance people, accounting people, and the marketing people, they don't really talk to each other uh, uh, in a very um, a systematic way uh, uh, about pricing. I think that the two additional reasons are, number one, it's actually a very risky decision. Uh, so if you make a pricing decision, you know that uh, the outcome would be very immediate. Uh, either it's a very good or it's a very bad. If it's a very bad, obviously you're going to take a responsibility for it. And uh, you know that in corporation, you probably don't want to make those kind of decisions very often. 
and uh, most of the decisions we make and uh, nothing good coming out of it, nothing bad is going to come out of it either. So give, in that kind of situation, obviously, you don't have to take any kind of responsibility. I think in pricing, that's definitely not the case. And uh, you make a pricing decision, you basically have to take responsibility for it. And the outcome could be good and could be bad. I think that's one, one, one of the reasons why pe- people probably shun uh, this kind of a decision making. Um, so in that case, what do you do? Of course, that what do you do is that you just do what everybody else is doing. Do the cost plus and uh, cl- uh, cost plus pricing, and do the competitive uh, competition based pricing, and do the consumer based pricing. That's essentially that uh, the approach that uh, a lot of firms uh, actually use. And also, I think the second reason is also very important. The pricing decision is hard to make. You really have to know a lot of stuff uh, to make a good decision. You really have to have a street smarts and to really know uh, what the particular price, uh, pricing decision you make and uh, what impact on the consumers. And uh, so I always uh, sort of uh, liken the pricing decision to the brain surgery. And you basically have to know something about the, uh, uh, know, know what you do and know what you're doing and to open up somebody's brain. I think that in pricing, a lot of people just get scared of making that kind of decision. That certainly is one of the reasons. Okay. Now, you mentioned a moment ago the three simplistic approaches that you discuss in the book, uh, Smart Pricing, uh, that firms often take, and you say that these three approaches are simplistic. And John, uh, just to reiterate what you said a moment ago, cost plus pricing is one approach, competition-based pricing is another, and consumer-based pricing is a third. Raju, can you just quickly take us through those approaches and uh, what they mean and, and what the shortcomings are to each? If you Well, have. I think uh, they do mean different things to different people, but at least let's sort of try to clarify what we mean by that. So let's say cost plus pricing. I think many companies do have a reasonable sense of what it costs them to deliver a product or a service. And uh, and what they would do is, in, in some sense, in a risk-averse manner, say, look, how much margin do I need to make uh, on my cost so that at least I'm, I'm not wrong? That doesn't mean they are right, but they are not wrong. So it's a safe way of doing things is, look, if I charge prices significantly or reasonable above cost, I'll be okay. The problem with that is, let's say uh, you don't get the right uh, sales as a consequence of that, whether it's either too low or too high. Let's for the moment assume it's too low. What's your next step? All right, you'll say, as you know, if my sales are too low, my costs will definitely go up because I'll be allocating a big part of my cost to you know, smaller units. So now my costs go up. So I'll increase the price even further. Then my sales go up even fu- uh, go even lower, and then you get into a spiral. Uh, the other the problem on the other side is you never know how high you could have gone uh, if you do just cost plus pricing. So if your product seems to be better than what uh, you believe, then you lose out on there. Competition based pricing is just you know you look at what others are doing and and do it. Okay, that's also a safe kind of approach. In some in some cases, it may be fine to do that. Uh, if you have a product that's no better than competition, uh, you don't deserve to get a higher price. Uh, but in many settings, you will lose out. Uh, you will uh, miss the opportunity. John, you want to add? Uh, I think in the book, uh, we obviously trying to point out uh, that uh, in many cases, for instance, as a, as a single company, if you want to use the cost plus pricing or you do the competition based pricing, the property is not really that bad. 
And uh, but the problem is that if everybody does that, uh, it does cause a lot of problem. For instance, if you do the competition based pricing, and why you want to look at a competition when you set your price? It's simply because you want to make sure that you can sell your product. You want to make sure that you can maintain your market share. And but of course, everybody else wants to do that too. So which basically means that when I look at your price, I'm going to charge it a little bit below yours. And you look at my price, you want to charge a little bit below mine. And uh, so ultimately, that uh, you're going to get into this price war. And in fact, uh, that uh, in many industries, you do observe this. Over time, what happens is that the prices keep going down. Not only that, and the services and uh, get reduced, simply because you do have to lower your cost and to charge a lower price. And uh, so over time, of course, that uh, you're going to commoditize the industry. So that's essentially one of the messages that uh, we try to uh, get across in the industry that, uh, in fact, uh, when you actually set a price, uh, you probably have to consider the, the consequence uh, in, the, in the marketplace. If everybody does that, uh, if everybody doing the same way, and what would be the opportunities for you to do something different? And uh, that's essentially one, one, one of the things. I think the last thing that uh, the, uh, the consumer-based price is more sort of... Uh, and that's the third one that the you third discussed one, in the book. Exactly, yes. that's okay. the third one. Uh, essentially, that uh, the firm would assess the consumer valuation, which is not really a bad thing uh, to start with, and uh, figure out how much the customer is willing to pay. And then I would charge you accordingly. Right? If you're willing to pay $10 for this particular product, I'm going to charge you $10. If you're willing to pay like $12, I'm going to charge you $12. And that doesn't seem to be a really bad thing to do, right? Except that when you actually look across different firms, across different customers, you're going to see that there could be a lot of problems. The problem is that as a company, for instance, if I buy the product from you, I definitely want to make sure that I pay the lowest possible price. Right, And uh, to make sure of that, obviously, as a buyer, I'm going to do a lot of things to squeeze you. Right, So I will befriend the salesperson, and uh, I will probably make a lot of threats. I would actually go out there, court the other suppliers, and to make sure that I put the pressure on you to charge a lower price, and so on and so forth. A lot of problems we actually observe in the industries really stem from uh, the fact that uh, uh, the seller just uses too flexible uh, pricing mechanism and to charge different prices to different buyers. And ultimately, for instance, if you are the customer, if you buy a product that, uh, that uh, has a higher price uh, than your friends, if the product is exactly the same, obviously you're going to feel really bad about this. Right? And then you probably next time around, you're probably going to shop longer. You're going to look uh, into more places before you actually make a purchase. So there is a consequence and, uh, to uh, what do you do in terms of how you price your product. Okay, so uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about the, the simplistic approaches that companies take. So let's go through the meat of the book uh, in which you two lay out nine kind of creative uh, approaches um, to pricing. Uh, we don't have time to go through all nine, but let's go through a few of them. Uh, Raju, let's start with you. If you can discuss uh, one of those approaches that you discuss in the book, which is the pay-as-you-wish pricing, uh, and it involved the uh, the rock group uh, Radiohead. Right. I think, uh, in in first of all, maybe it's worthwhile talking about the general sort of idea of all these sort of nine strategies. So if you think about good pricing – it comes in two parts. One is the organization for making good decisions, and other is the skill set for making good decisions. So the book focuses predominantly on the skill set for making good decisions. Uh, 
and we, in the process we talk about organizing also. And, and when we talk about the skill set for making good decisions, I think what we are really talking about is people should think about creative ways of, uh, of changing the pricing practice in the industry. As opposed to changing prices, try to change the pricing practice in an industry. That's how you become a price leader. So all these nine uh, chapters, in some sense, talk about not changing price, but changing how you, what is the pricing practice in an industry. So that's the sort of common theme across all nine sort of detailed sections. So if you think about, uh, you know, if you think about pay as you wish or any of the other chapters, I think all of them are in some sense changing what I would call as the, the denominator of pricing decision as opposed to the numerator. Price per what, right, or price how. And, and pay as you wish is, is essentially, if you have a lot of heterogeneity in terms of people's willingness to pay, you don't know what that is, what is the best way to find out? It's pay as you wish, right? And in some settings, studies have shown that that actually results in uh, higher revenues uh, than if you were to set a price yourself. You don't know as much about the customer, but uh, how do you find out? Going back, pay as you wish is like an auction, uh, except you're not uh, creating an auction. It's ex post. The question we ask in that chapter is, when would you uh, price before versus after the, the sale? So those are kind of the issues. But in, in all these cases, if you don't know, in pay as you wish, you don't know much about the customer. There is wide degree in variance across customers' willingness to pay for a product. Then pay as you wish is a good starting point. Now, that seems to be an approach that would, would appear to put a company out on the ledge, would it not? I mean, where they, there's tremendous risk that, uh, in the case of Radiohead, the, the the musical group that put out a CD, if I have that correct, yes. and, and they said, we will, uh, our, our fans can buy this, uh, this recording for as much as they're willing to pay. And I think in the book you mentioned that a large percentage of people actually downloaded that music for free, did they not? They did. However, there was a nonetheless a good outcome. For the group, John. John, um, it is. Uh, I, I think that uh, in the book we're trying to sort of uh, uh, lay out all the possible uh, possible ways, not all possible ways, but a large number of uh, possible ways to set a price for a product or service. Uh, in fact, uh, obviously that each one of those uh, different uh, pricing mechanisms uh, would uh, be applicable. Uh, in different kind of uh, conditions. I think a pay as wish pricing would be a very, very good pricing mechanism for Radiohead, for instance. It may not be actually a good pricing mechanism for some other companies. I think in the book we point out, uh, number one, you probably want to make sure that uh, your cost of production is very small. In Radiohead's case, for instance, marginal cost is zero. If you download a lot of copy of the music, it doesn't cost me anything. So that probably is a very good condition uh, uh, in which uh, to use the pay as you wish pricing. And so even if a large number of people don't pay for it, and you know that they're, they're not going to pay for it uh, in the first place, simply because they could just use a pirated uh, version. And uh, so given that, and uh, you don't lose anything, right? So that's the first condition. I think the second one is also equally important. And, and in fact, uh, for Radioheads, they have some really loyal fans. And uh, based on some of the data that uh, we gather uh, for the book, and uh, some people willing to pay like up to like $20 
They think that they want to support this uh, band. They want the band to produce good music. And uh, so that's why the, the pay as you wish present action works uh, in that particular case. Uh, we also know that, for instance, if you're big oil, you don't want to use a pay as you wish present, right? If you're a big pharma, for instance, you don't want to use a pay as you wish present. Certainly, now the financial service companies, you probably never want to use a pay as you wish present. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if anything, right. they probably want to get more money from you. <laughs> uh, but in any case, so that's another. Uh, and also, the other reason where, where uh, other condition under which you probably want to use a pay as you wish present is the situation where the marketplace is very, very competitive. Right? If it's a very competitive, you're not going to make much money in the first place. In fact, in that kind of a market, what you want to do is to take the pricing discretion out of the hands of the firms who are selling the, who are selling the product. If you do that, obviously that you have no way to compete on price. Right? So it does cushion the price competition quite a bit if you use pay as you wish uh, pricing. And uh, it turned out that, uh, in fact, uh, in the music industry, it's a very, very competitive. And uh, so if you let the consumers to set the price, obviously that you don't have to compete on price. And that's another reason why it's uh, very successful. So in the book, in fact, we do lay out uh, all those different conditions as to what kind of a pricing mechanism would work, uh, would work in what kind of conditions. Okay. Now, what about the – let's talk a little bit about the approach uh, that seems to uh, involve setting no price whatsoever for your customers. It's the Google approach, which essentially makes the – the product or service free to the consumer. John, how does how does that work, and why has it been successful for Google? Uh, it is very successful for Google. I think that when I was teaching at Indian School for Business, and, and the students there asked a very, very good question. The question was that uh, if I want to compete with Google, what are the things that I could do to defeat uh, Google? And um, so at the time that I was thinking about the answer, uh, the, first, the first answer that jumped to my mind was that probably you don't want to compete with Google. Google is big enough, strong enough, and it's a really formidable uh, um, uh, competitor in the marketplace. Um, that's the first answer. And the second answer, I said that, that of course, that in, in India, with the sort of a very ambitious uh, techie uh, uh, students, uh, and uh, obviously that, that that's a bad answer. Okay, they certainly would not take that as an answer. So my second answer was that, in fact, that you probably don't want to compete with Google on price, simply because Google already charges zero price, and for for using a lot of different services that they offer. And if you compete on price, what would be the next thing you could do? You can probably just give money for people to use your search engine. Right. You probably never want to do that and because if you do that and you're going to start a cottage industry where uh, people just uh, do the search for no good reason. They just keep uh, staying on their computer, do the search all day and to make money uh, uh, that way. Right. So short of a price and then what else you could do? Of course, you can compete, uh, compete in terms of uh, technology and in terms of quality of uh, uh, the search uh, results and in terms of how you display the search information, how you make sense out of uh, search information and so on and so forth. That might be the way. But the reason why I mentioned that is because uh, there you see that, in fact, uh, that uh, free does give uh, the Google a huge advantage, advantage in the sense of uh, penetrating the marketplace because in most cases, uh, what stops a customer from buying a product is really the price. If I take the price away, there is no reason for you not to buy the product, right? You would definitely achieve the maximum market penetration. I think that's what uh, Google uh, Google uh, Google did. 
But then the question is that if you give the service for free, how are you going to make money then? Obviously, that Google in this case would charge the uh, charge the advertisers, and uh, of course, that Google is uh, working in a so-called uh, two-sided market and uh, uh, condition, and which basically means that they can make money out of customers who use the search engine. They can also make money out of advertisers who want to get hold of those customers. So in this kind of situation, normally what you want to do is to make money out of the side that's less price sensitive. And uh, I think that we can find all kinds of different examples uh, like that in real life. For instance, that uh, frequently you go to a bar, they would only charge men and they, they let a woman come in for free. Lady, okay. Ladies' night. Ladies, so <laughs> ladies, okay. right, so ladies come in for free. And, uh, but in that case, we know that if ladies are there, obviously men are willing to pay a fortune to get in there. And so that's how they make money. And, uh, and so in Google case, it's exactly like that. Okay. Uh, another uh, innovative approach that you discuss in the book is um, allowing prices to be set by price wars. Um, which, again, seems to be kind of a risky way to do business. But, John, um, uh, apparently that works for, for some firms, does it not? I have been teaching in China for many years. And, in fact, one of the uh, questions that people always ask me there is that uh, why is that in Western countries you don't see a lot of price wars? But in China you see a lot of price wars. In fact, frequently what happens is that uh, the top management of the company, they will get together, they have a meeting, and then they decide that we're going to start a price war. They set a D-Day, and see, six months down the road, we're going to start a price war on a certain day, and this is how we're going to uh, start the price war, lower the price by like a 30 40%, and uh, see what happens. Okay, and in that kind of situation, and when I come back to the U.S. and when I teach a pricing here, and obviously that everybody seems to have the notion that you never want to start a price war, you never want to get involved in a price war, and if somebody starts a price war, you want to get out of it as quickly as possible. And uh, so that's why I decided to look into the situation and see why, for instance, in China, people think differently. And uh, why in U.S., for instance, uh, people have a totally different notion. It turned out that there is a rationale behind all that. In fact, when you look into the rationale, and uh, you can actually look into the, um, uh, the art of a price war. Uh, this is a lot of things that's really amazing that you go to China, uh, you ask people, how many of you have, uh, have re- uh, read the book, uh, The Art of a War by Sun Tzu? And a lot of people will raise their hands. And, uh, but, of course, if you do that here, and not many people would do that. And uh, so they do actually sort of treat the, the price war as a marketing opportunity. It's a marketing instrument that you could use and to generate a lot of opportunities for you. So in the chapter on the price war, we actually discuss uh, when you may want to start a price war. If you do pr- uh, start a price war, how are you going to plan for the price war? How are you going to execute the price war so that eventually you become ever uh, victorious uh, general and engage in the war? Okay, okay. Yeah. The uh, another approach we can uh, talk about, Raju, is micro pricing. Um, thinking small, I think, is the is the phrase that you use to right. to head uh, this chapter. Before uh, yep. uh, we go to that, I want to emphasize this issue of okay. uh, Google a little bit, and I think John uh, highlighted this. Uh, it's important to recognize that this idea of a platform or two sided platform is much more common. Uh, is is applicable in many other industries, and many people don't realize that. For example, uh, 
uh, if you think about a newspaper as a two-sided platform, but they charge both sides. Google chose, chose to charge one side, which is newspaper charge the subscriber as well as the advertiser. You can think of even an automobile as a platform. To some extent, an automobile creates a platform for creating businesses. The company makes some money of it. The service providers make some money of it. Company makes some money from ongoing services like OnStar. I think companies these days have to decide uh, where are they going to make the money, which side is going to pay. Uh, and, and think about Ryanair in, in, in Europe. They pretty much made it free, isn't it? It's not exactly free, but it's made it free. But they think of themselves also as a two-sided platform where one side is the passengers and other side is the hotels and the taxi drivers at the airport. So they choose to charge taxi drivers and hotels at the airport, uh, near the airports, as opposed to passengers. So I think this is, again, uh, going back to the issue of changing the pricing practice in an industry. And, and Google has triggered that uh, by you know, deciding to charge one side and not the other. But I think this area is applicable in many settings. Now we get back to this issue of uh, pricing small uh, items I th or, or pricing in, uh, in small increments. I think there again, what you're trying to see is different people consume different products at different rates. All right? So the consumption of, of a shampoo in the U.S. is on a daily basis. Uh, the... The, the, the small uh, consumer in India who's not very, uh, who's, who's, who's relatively poor, uh, will use it on an infrequent basis, use it on a special occasion, for example. Now, to try to sell this person uh, a full bottle of shampoo at a very large price is not going to be uh, viable for, uh, for the market there. But if you are now uh, micro-pricing it, I think it's very useful. Now, micro-pricing doesn't have to be for just uh, consumer packaged goods, but if you now go to India, you'll see cell phone pricing on a per-second basis as opposed to per-minute basis. Uh, what it's, a, it's an interesting opportunity for the Indian consumer to, and also for the companies that deal with them. What it does, of course, is put some, put some pressure on the companies to measure at a micro-scale, just like it puts some pressure on the companies to produce small packets at a reasonable cost. It also puts companies uh, under some pressure to, uh, I'm going to bill on a per second basis. That requires a lot of technology. That requires a lot of effort. But if you are able to do that well, then it works out. Ultimately, how should companies begin to rethink their approach to pricing in the most kind of overarching strategic way? And secondly, is it worth considering within a company having a, let's say, a, a chief pricing officer or a person or at least a small group for whom the responsibility is is designated, and and that's and and that is the focus of their responsibility, or is that just not workable? I think it's worthwhile thinking about a chief pricing officer uh, in in companies, uh, someone with that responsibility. However, I would also say that that does not mean other functions have to abdicate their responsibility on pricing. It's very important uh, function for the marketing people to be engaged in that and finance and accounting. The role of this person is to bring everyone to the table, develop an organization structure and a skill set. So it's the combination of a good organization structure along with the skill set that will allow us to make good pricing decisions. And we know the returns from that are phenomenal. Study after study has shown that even small improvements here lead to really large outcomes in terms of the bottom line. And there is so, so much low-hanging fruit uh, in this area that we can capitalize on, it is uh, 
Uh, it is just, uh, it's all open for us. John, any final thoughts? Um, I, I would say that, in fact, uh, that uh, the pricing environment is really getting tougher and tougher because of all those uh, new information technologies that are available to all the consumers out there in the marketplace. So because of that, you can imagine that uh, the payoff for uh, doing the right pricing, making the right pricing decision is going to be huge. And because of that, I totally agree with what Raju just said, that, that uh, probably it does make sense for companies to think about uh, having a chief uh, pricing officer who will be responsible for actually uh, f- uh, uh, making the pricing decision from the beginning to the end and make a pricing adjustment over time. And uh, I think you see that, in fact, some of the companies out there do actually do that. And, uh, in fact, uh, there is a tremendous uh, payoff there And uh, because of that. I also want to add that, in fact, uh, that uh, uh, between Raju and me, we actually uh, have taught over uh, probably four or 5,000 people uh, in prison over over last uh, 10 to 15 years. And uh, we really want to thank uh, all the students uh, for contributing their insights in the classroom discussion. And a lot of uh, those insights are actually crystallized uh, into this book. And so if you feel a little bit nostalgic about uh, the, uh, the your uh, student days, uh, this is probably a good book to read. The book is called Smart Pricing. It's published by Wharton School Publishing. The authors are Jagmohan Raju and John Zhang. Thank you both for being here today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.